It's a beautiful sunny day, which apparently is not that usual in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. I'm at the Bunnicky Library with two curators, and I'm going to let you guys take it from here. Do you want to start? I'll start. Hi, I'm Diane Duchon, and I'm an archivist here at the Bunnicky Library. I specialize in cataloging medieval and early modern manuscripts. And I'm here because I co-curated the exhibit that we're going to be talking about, Bibliomania. And my name is Ray Clemens. I'm the curator for early books and manuscripts at the Beinecke. Uh, I came here in 2012, and I've worked with Diane almost since arrival. Um, and uh, this was an opportunity to explore a topic that had a lot of medieval, uh, but also went right up until the modern. Uh, and so for both of us, that was a chance to kind of get outside of our comfort zone. Terrific. Well, but welcome, both of you, to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you. One aspect of Bibliomania was, or one focus, was on the, some have called him the most impressive book collector ever, Thomas Phillips. Perhaps you could tell me a bit about who this person was. All right, I'll start. Thomas Phillips once said that he wanted to own a copy of every book in the world. He got close. He was born in 1792. He was the illegitimate son of a manufacturer. He was well-raised and inherited money, and he was already collecting books as a young man. He, he, went, he went to rugby, right? He went to rugby and then on to Oxford, I think. Yeah? Yes. Okay. And uh, he already had 110 books when he was 16. He printed a list of all of them. He so, was an inveterate list keeper. Yeah. And by the time he died, he had acquired about... 40,000 printed volumes and 60,000 manuscripts. And you say that that's close to all the books in the world at that point? No, but it's about as no, but it was about as close as one person in England was going to get. It's a lot. So how did he go about doing this then? Well, um, he did the sort of traditional thing with going to booksellers and realized that that was costing him a lot of money. And so he uh, then would go to auctions and try to buy a lot of the material directly. And he was also one of the first Englishmen to realize that there would be a lot of sales on the continent after the Napoleonic uh, Wars uh, and uh, sort of all the social and uh, political rebellion that was taking place. And so he actually went and bought, at one point, almost a, a monastery's worth of materials uh, from uh, Leander von Es, who was a famous collector. Um, and so uh, that was how he started. And then um, the sort of crazy part of him was that uh, he wasn't terribly discerning. He, he doesn't seem to have read a lot of his books. And well, that, so, that, that tends to be the case with collectors. Is it really? Many collectors don't read their stuff. They just like to have them and know that they're there. Yeah. And he, he did like to know that they were there. He kept lists of them uh, and catalogs, and he put his book stamp, uh, I think, in almost every book he owned. And, every and numbered them, and yes. Yeah. So he was very obsessive-compulsive in, in a way that you don't often see, I think, with book collectors, where they're right. a little bit less uh, organized. Um, so there's a line, obviously, between a bibliophile, a book collector and a bibliomaniac, and you're yes. putting him over that line by a ways. By, by quite a ways, and uh, Diane will give mm. you details, but in general I think somebody that sacrifices both his own and the well-being of his family yeah. uh, to pursue his addiction, whether that's books or, or anything else. I that's think that is line, one of the dividing lines, yes. Yeah. Is that it's mm -hmm. not, he, he inherited money, but not nearly enough to keep up with his purchases. Uh, and so um, I, I think that's why we put him in the maniac rather than the file. Sure. Part of it. So. Okay. His father distrusted his collecting from the beginning, and he entailed the estate so that Phillips only got income. He couldn't sell the estate. Okay. There were a couple of times in which he had to flee to the continent to avoid his creditors. Yeah, that's, that's pretty serious. That's it? very <laughs> serious. It happened a lot, but, you know, the traditional thing was to decamp to Belgium and wait wait them out until they could come to an agreement with you. Okay. This is a very common problem with heirs. Usually it was not books, it was gambling or some other vice. Yeah. He absolutely, I think, made both of his wives completely miserable with his collecting. Mm -hmm. His second wife complained... What happened to the first wife? She died? Or she, died she died relatively young. Because... She was, no, she was an invalid. 
the second wife complained when they moved into a new house that she had nowhere to sleep because she'd been booked out of one wing and ratted out of the other. There were apparently rats infesting the building. Rats and books together? Not good. Not a good Not combination. Mm. He, did, you know, he, he did keep his books in these uh, boxes, yeah. these okay. crates. He, his big fear wasn't rats. His big fear was fire. Um, and he was deathly afraid that somebody would, that there'd be a fire, accidental, and it would consume his collection. And so um, he put them in boxes that he thought people would be able to carry quickly out of a house. Yeah. Uh, we've seen some of these boxes. You the Rollier Club has one. Uh, and there is no way... Uh, they would have been able to get all these boxes out of any house. But it, it's sort of what, one of his compulsions you know, was to avoid fire. Right. Rats, not so much, apparently. No, but, you know, the, the thing is, one of the things that his obsession drove him to was actually incredibly beneficial for modern research because he was inspired to start collecting parchment documents. He called himself a vellum maniac. He would buy entire truckloads of this stuff. He would buy entire small collections of it, contracts, wills, legal documents, things that people were not collecting very avidly at that point. He was influenced by, was it Ranka? Yeah, Leopold von Ranka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who was, it had a different view of history and, and how to record it and preserve mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, von Ranka was really the first person that thought that things like charters and wills um, were useful. Uh, before, histor- historians studied history for its moral lessons. You didn't really need to know what happened. You needed to know what the great people did, mm-hmm. how they reacted to adversity, and, and things like that. So you could use them as a kind of a guide to your own life. Exactly. It was part yeah. of the pedagogy. Um, what von Ranke did was he thought that uh, we could actually build up uh, an entire edifice of history based on these individual charters. It's sort of problematic now. We think that charters aren't quite the clear documents that they that he believed they, that they were. But he did establish that, you know, we can know this person lived at a certain time and in a certain place, mm-hmm. did certain things, had a certain uh, economic status. And so he came to uh, Phillips's residence and worked with the materials there. And more importantly, sent a lot of his students and then von Ranke students came to the U.S., and they were really what started the modern study of history in the U.S., was that emigration wave coming out of Germany. So what came first? Did von Ranke's view of history and collecting influence uh, Thomas Phillips, or did Phillips come up with this on his own? Yeah, they were pretty much parallel tracks. Uh, yeah. So they were just like-minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Okay, and, and then they just found out about each other and... As often happens in history, the themes begin to percolate. You know, what happens in the French Revolution as people get access to archives is that the French begin to think about a theory of archives and how archives can document the history of a people and a nation. Phillips is coming up at a time in which he's beginning to think about collecting things and He's seeing all this material still being disregarded. He mm. said that he was inspired to collect it by watching it being carted off for boot blacks to use. So he, again, he, he thought this was egregious. Yes, yes. He wanted yeah. to save it, you know, and he bought it by the truckload. That was his motivation, to yes. save To yeah. save it. And, and, and specifically for history. Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, it, so it was a good motivation. Oh, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And his whole thing about being a velomaniac, I think, was partly tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was an antiquarian, so he was very interested in local history. And there were these cartularies, which are collections of charters, that people had valued. They just hadn't valued the materials they were based on. Um, and they also didn't value, for example, that somebody in the middle class, uh, even um, farmers will often show up in these documents because it was their lands that were being uh, worked on. So mm-hmm. he was doing this in kind of a local history interest. Uh, von Rocco was doing it in kind of a European mode. Um, and yeah, the two of them luckily uh, sort of found that together and obviously reinforced each other, I think. Right. So you were saying that when he was young, he already had 100 books. Mm-hmm. So he spent more than he had? Consistently. He spent more than he had when he was 14 
He spent more than he had when he was 40, and he spent more than he had the year he died. And it's interesting that as a student, there's sort of a genre going at least back to the 1200s, but I'm sure it's even more ancient than that, of students writing to their fathers to say, you know, Oxford was much more expensive than we thought it would be. Um, And of course, usually we attribute that to students drinking too much beer and and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And when Phillips was writing to his father, he was literally saying, you know, I need more money for books. But his father was not... Uh, an intellectual, and his father would always write back about, do you really need uh, this book? Or and he really book? didn't. And he absolutely did not. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. But he had a great excuse. It looked yeah. good. It yeah, looked so like I, he was I'm very scholarly. Book, sure. But in fact, his father knew that he wasn't scholarly because his father also had to pay for tutors to help him through because he was not passing his classes. So do we have any idea of what it was that bit him? Like, why was he a book collector? I think, and this is entirely speculative, I think it was something that you could collect, that you could assert a control over. Collectors are often like that. And it was also, I think, possibly, and I'm being a little psychoanalytic here, connected to his status as not a legitimate heir. These are things that would demonstrate your worthiness in a way. Proof that... Proof that you were, in fact, you know, a fine person, a person who could belong to such a class, that you were pursuing something scholarly and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It it is as much for show as for anything else because he didn't read a lot of them. Right. Mm -hmm. It it certainly was status. I think Diane is right. He had a particular focus on heraldry and other sort of history that would document family lines, um, and he was very, very protective of his own very recent uh, bona fides in that yeah. respect. He, you know, he re- refused to be called anything other than Sir Thomas Phillips. Um, and of course, the amusing thing is, if you look at these things, they go back centuries, these wonderful, you know, all of this genealogical material. He got his title, Sir Thomas Phillips of Middle Hill, in 1821. He got it despite the fact that he was the illegitimate son of a middle-class manufacturer because he had married a woman whose father had, who was a naval officer and whose father had connections to a politician. Okay. But he was so, so proud So it really wasn't that. that legitimate. No, but he thought, oh, yeah, he was quite is... fine with that from then on. He used his, his lion crest as his book stamp. Okay, so it really is a bit of a theme, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the odd thing is, of course, that for a man kind of obsessed with lineage, he didn't get to pass that title on because he only had three daughters. Right. And so the title died with him. Extinct. And didn't he disown one of his daughters? or? Uh, yes, yeah, so his um, eldest daughter married a man who Thomas correctly believed uh, had stolen books from Balliol College at Oxford and sold them to the British Library. Uh, his name was Thomas Fenwick. He turned out to be a brilliant academic. He uh, wrote on Shakespeare and uh, was truly an impressive individual. But to steal a book was, to Thomas, obviously, uh, an unpardonable uh, sin. And uh, he, he, he was very much a binary person. Uh, there were no gray. shades of gray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that Diane and I, the, one of the reasons we were motivated to do this was um, there's a very famous five-volume biography of Thomas Phillips by uh, a man named Munby. And it's a, yeah. it's a brilliant work. But He's quite a well-known bookman, Munby. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's now a very prestigious fellowship uh, at his name at Cambridge to study bibliography. But we were hoping that we would discover something by looking through all of his publications and all of his manuscripts that would go against uh, the kind of almost dysfunctional side of him. So, yeah. for example, what your question about von Ranke and history... When I started this, it seemed like he was very much a revolutionary and somebody that had very, you know, had come up with these ideas mm-hmm. and was ahead of his time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the the sort of familial part of it just it really does come to dominate, and you realize that um, he was a great individual in many ways, but he was also very limited uh, in some ways. And and while that's a, a sad thing, it, it did affect his collecting, it affected his family, it affected his reputation. Mm-hmm. The break with his daughter. And because of the inheritance laws of England meant that he could pass on his library as movable property to anybody, but he could only pass on his estate to his eldest uh, daughter under primogenitor rules. 
And so the eldest daughter got an income from the properties. The younger daughter, the middle daughter, inherited the library, but with no funds to keep it up. Uh, and so she was stuck with not being allowed to sell the material because it was encumbered and having no income uh, to support it. And so for many years, it sort of remained in limbo. And then finally, they received permission to break it up and sell it. Um, but Which is really not what he wanted, right? No. He, no. Didn't he spend a good part of his time trying to get Disraeli to buy it for the British Library? He spent a great deal of time on schemes to get the British Library to buy it, to get it to the British Museum. Yeah. But unfortunately, even there, his prejudices got in the way. He wanted to impose restrictions. He wanted to say that no Roman Catholics could use the library. Is that, is that common, or is that just not outright that prejudice? E not to that extent. The okay. Roman, Anti-Roman Catholicism is very common in England in the period. Yeah. There's a lot of suspicion of the Oxford movement and of Rome sent, Rome sent a bishop over for the first time since Wolsey, a cardinal, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very darkly looked upon. But he took it to an extreme. There were few people who would have said that Roman Catholics would not be allowed to see their books. Marry their daughters, that's another issue, but <laughs> see their books. Yeah, and yeah. so he also tried uh, with Oxford, at Oxford, one of them, and uh, the, the same problem. And then he wanted to establish a library in Wales. And that exploded for all sorts of different reasons, um, probably because he simply couldn't keep his eye on the ball yeah. long enough to do that. But yeah, it's interesting that his prejudices are the reason his library was broken up. Uh, and that he would have had to have trade, traded one of those for the other. And instead, he sort of punted to his heirs uh, and put them in a very unfortunate situation. Uh, on the other hand, for us in America, we lucky. are very lucky yeah. because yeah. had that gone en masse to the British Library or to Oxford, we would have much more impoverished collections. That's the, that is uh, the story of many collections. Uh, you know, American universities with deep pockets taking a lot of British heritage out of the, the British Isles. Oh, absolutely. The, the sales of the Phillips Library, as you probably know, went mm -hmm. on into the 1970s. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just an enormous sequence of sales as they finally get it unencumbered and they you know, the auction house manages to put together another group of Phillips. Yeah, let's get back to, to the, his compilation of it. It seems to, if, if he put together such a magnificent collection, how was he able to do that? You'd think he'd need a huge amount of money if it's one of the best in the world. Well, it's one of the, it would be one of the best in the world now. And it was certainly a magnificent thing in its time, but a great deal of this stuff literally had no market value. Mm. He was the charters, the wills, the contracts, all of that was being sold by the wagon load. But what I'm saying then is back then Sorry. no problem. No, no, you have to move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back then no one would have thought what he was doing had any value. No, some of it they would have believed had value. The early volumes that he collected, right. the medieval manuscripts. Yeah. You know, the more conventional collecting had been going on for quite a long time. You didn't need that much money to amass such a great collection back then? Not, not, not in the so way much, that we not, think of. Not Just the because there were today. fewer book collectors or people or institutions that were interested in this stuff. Yes. I guess yeah. the demand wasn't that no. great. No, it was, it was not as high. He often did go against the British Library at auctions. But again, their funds were, were extremely limited in terms of acquisitions because they didn't see this as part of their heritage. Um, and that's why people like Von Ranke and Phillips and um, others were sort of a generation ahead of uh, their time. Uh, and so it took a while for them to you know, realize the importance of it. Um, and honestly, Diana's right. If you look even at the manuscripts, uh, we've purchased several recently and they're, they're grubby. They're used. Uh, and for those of us that are historians, we could not be happier. But for an antiquarian market, they were looking for very clean. They wanted uh, lots of images because mm -hmm. a lot of them still weren't reading Latin. Uh, and uh, that's not what he collected. Very few books. He did not like books of hours. If a book had an image, it was incidental to the text. And so, yeah, that, you know, he had money. He borrowed a lot of money. And so what happened is, is he bought a lot of books and then didn't pay for a lot of them. So the booksellers, in, in a weird way, uh, probably, you know, accumulated a lot of that. 
you, you think they wouldn't deal with him afterwards, but he was such a big purchaser that they sort of couldn't afford not to. And so over and over again, we see this pattern. Sometimes yeah. he paid. Yeah, sometimes he did. Yeah, you're right. It was a different world. These things were just not uh, the premium mm. that, that we have. Uh, and that changes um, with people like J.P. Morgan uh, and, uh, you know, other oil, oil barons um, and really, you know, fires up that market. In the earlier 19th century, mm-hmm. especially all of the modern material he was yeah. collecting, another thing that he did that was very unusual was that he collected documentation right down to his own day. You know, information that he thought was interesting about London in the 18th century or Parisian documents from the mid-17th century, and no one was collecting that at all. Like what kind of documents? Like tickets uh, or...? Uh, no, basically he, he, he had marriage contracts from French noble families. Unless you were that French noble family, it wasn't of particular sales interest yeah. to anyone. He had a collection of documents about the payment of relief to Italian refugees in London in 1825. Who would have thought? Uh, who would have bought it? No yeah, one would have no bought one, yeah. it. You know, Phillips is, I think, possibly the only man in England who would have put money down on that document. Even if he 1850s. didn't have it. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Somebody else's money. Or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a fascinating social history yeah. that yeah. He's, he's documenting. And that's, again fairly new for collectors at the period. Mm. Collectors like books of hours, they like beautiful volumes, hopefully with an author inscription, they like original manuscripts of something, but it's a period that is just transitioning into the kind of almost celebrity collecting of the later 19th century. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, uh, that the collectors do that's a mistake is they they typically start off with a really wide focus and it sounds to me like that's exactly what he did but it didn't stop him he doesn't narrow no he really doesn't he might even broaden certainly by the end of his life he's interested in native american uh material he's interested in latin american uh materials uh one of the pieces that we showed was uh, a document that described how much it cost to transport a slave uh, from one place in South America to another. Mm-hmm. And again, not something anybody else would collect, but also no European would have been interested in these documents yeah. for the most part. It just is its very, very interesting. Um, yeah. just, as you're right, it just got, if anything, broader over time, not narrower. Mm-hmm. I interrupted you. I was just going to say, uh, the other thing is, is that things like uh, charters are still really undervalued. If, if you're to go to a, a bookseller or even an auction, you can pick these up for $500, $1,000, whereas if you wanted even a grubby book, you know, $15,000, $20,000. So From that period? Yeah. yeah, same period. Describe exactly the purpose of a charter then. Sure. Uh, a charter is a contract between usually two individuals where one person is conveying rights or lands to another person uh, for a period of time. And that other person is getting these things and giving a money payment usually. Um, And so they're of limited duration, uh, like our contracts are. And the moment they're they're no longer valid, there's no reason for either individual to keep a copy of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's generally two copies uh, of every one. So um, these things collect in various places, but they're not not useful in a uh, legal sense. They're not enforceable anymore. And so, yeah, they just become detritus. But they're on a very valuable substance. So parchment can be used uh, for all sorts of things to make uh, dresses fluffier, crinoline-like materials for dresses, to make shoes, uh, to make wallets, to make all sorts of, uh, to cover other books. We have a lot of books that are covered with old manuscripts. Um, so the material is valuable, even if the text is no longer valuable. And if it's nice parchment, you can always scrape it off and use it again. So is there a point where he say, he decides, okay, I've done a pretty good job here. I've got a fairly complete collection. Now I'm going to donate it to someone. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, just not, not his personality. He, he didn't convalesce long before he died, which I think helped. So there wasn't a long period of invalidity where he, he might have gained some perspective uh, on his life. But he seems to have been collecting right up uh, until the end. And doesn't seem to have been slowed down, stepped into that very, very end period of his life. Okay. Um, there was a point, though, at which he did decide to do something that, in a way, was almost as important, and that was to 
publish a catalog of his collection. That was an important decision. He had been numbering them and making lists of them. He was a, a printer as well, we should mention, right? Yes. Yes, so. that was one of the things that Diane and I were, were first interested in. We'd always known him as a manuscript collector, uh, but he had his own press at Middle Hill that he established uh, for the same reasons that you could imagine, and that is that he thought he would save money by having an in-house press rather than paying a press to print the things he wanted. Uh, what he soon discovered was the moment you have a press and it's idle at all, it's wasting you money. And so he threw a lot of stuff into print that we might not have printed. So all this why, why would it be costing money? Just the people, he, people that he hired to? Yeah, you have to keep both the, the mm -hmm. printer, the pressman, and his, his assistant. They have to be constantly paid, uh, even if they're not working. And he just could not, he could not deal with that as a concept. And so uh, any time he thought they were not working as hard as they should, which was always, um, he would have them doing things like printing up, uh, you know, the lists of his furniture and his silver um, and how long it take, took him to travel from one part of his place to another place. Sort of like the printing revolution we had in the 80s where you got these printers and you could finally start printing things quickly and cheaply. Mm -hmm. That's what he seems almost to have done. But again, we started this because a lot of his publications were of uh, cartularies, these early charter collections. Mm -hmm. And so we thought that it was that antiquarian interest that would have proven to be uh, a lasting influence. I don't, I'm not sure what you're talking about. There. So what, uh, if you are a, uh, a king or a prince or a monastery, you receive lands and money in order to run your monastery to keep it going. And those are charters. And in order, you would keep the charters, but you would also copy the charters into what's called a cartulary, which is a codex, a book form of all these charters, organized by either date or by whom you got them from. And so that was a, a big historical source that people were very interested in. Antiquarians were. Uh, Philip certainly was. Did he started printing these? Like, yes. Yeah. Like he took an original and made... 300 copies and then sold them? Well, some problems with that. The first one is, is that uh, he did, you had to have that typeset originally, um, which turned out to be a fairly expensive process uh, and laborious. The second thing was uh, there weren't a whole lot of people interested in them other than himself. So <laughs> he, he prints very few copies because sure. he's very cheap, yeah. and then he doesn't distribute them, and so they stay in his house. For, for quite a long time. And when uh, the whole thing gets sold, the Middle Hill Press stuff comes to eventually to H.R. Krauss in New York City, yeah. uh, almost complete. I mean, it's got several copies of, of everything that he published. So that was the idea, but he didn't distribute them very widely. People didn't know about them. And then because he did them so quickly, they were filled with errors. And so they couldn't be used as an historical source because you always had to go back to check it. If you're gonna go back and check it, you might as well use the original. Yeah. Uh, and so they were then re-edited uh, later on in history. But um, he, it was a, a sort of noble impulse mm -hmm. uh, to record it that way. It just didn't uh, have the effect that yeah. you would have hoped. He also uses lithography, really, for the first time. Uh, and that enables him to skip the whole typesetting stage of it. Uh, and so he just would write out by hand uh, all of these things. And, you know, gorgeous penmanship in the 19th century. You can still read uh, these materials very well, but it, it, for him it, it was again a way to save money because you saved all that time with the compositor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, while other people were attracted to it because they were able to do things, you could print handwriting for example, uh, for him it was an economic decision. You know, even the selection of his paper for his catalogs and for other things was determined by money. You, you, yeah. Our copy of the Phillips catalog is filled with you can see all the different kinds of paper he used because he just didn't care. Mm -hmm. He would use a scrap paper, right? Yeah. yeah, or blue paper, which was cheaper. You know, white paper is the most expensive, and mm -hmm. then you get sort of muddier, gray-looking paper. You get the blue paper, which has mixed-in dye from indigo and that sort of thing. But, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. he just printed it on very cheap paper. He didn't care. So we get then to a point where... He's tried to get the British Library involved, and that fails. Mm -hmm. Then what? He dies? Would he get fairly young when he died or not? No, he was not. Uh, 1792, 1872. Yeah, he was close to 80. Which of that period is? That's decent. Yeah. Yes, no, he made, it, he made it to a good age. Okay, despite being a jerk. 
Yes, that well, that's never inhibited them as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so the, the the library doesn't bite. He uh, but he continues to collect, and he I suppose he tries to continue. He does continue to uh, try to attract a buyer or mm-hmm. a, or a place. And it's interesting, as you say, it seems to me he wants this legacy in an important institution. Yes. Yeah. For his name to survive, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things he does very much in the last half of his career is attract more and more scholars to come see the material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear, I think, that one of the reasons he does that is that he wants admirers. And he wants people to spread the word about the great Phillips collection. Somehow that might attract attention and support. I I think he was thinking of the British Library and their initial big collections, the Sloan Collection and the Cott Collection. And so he very much, I'm sure he had in his mind the Phillips Collection as a sequence. Uh, In in fact, we mentioned the the um, anti-Catholic clauses, but the other things that killed the deal with the British Library were that um, he wanted his own sort of working room in the British Library. He wanted to be a trustee, mm-hmm. uh, and he wanted to have the job of the person that was currently the curator of those books. Mm-hmm. So you can see why the curator probably wouldn't be on board. Uh, <laughs> and because he was so irascible, the, uh, the, they knew that they couldn't have him as a trustee right. uh, on the board itself. So he, he did that to himself in a lot of ways. That They certainly wanted it. Uh, Madden is the curator. And he, after his death, he does try to secure it, but uh, he's not able to. Um, it's just too too expensive. So the daughter then, what does she do? She approaches an auction house, or they had to originally get laws changed uh, that enabled them to overcome the will. So the will stipulated that the collection had to always stay together. Yeah. Um, and that was inviolable. And there were trustees that that oversaw that. And so um, it's not until the daughter's uh, grandson mm-hmm. uh, is able to actually get that overturned uh, and then they're able to sell the books but it's not a quick process it took them a lot of time lobbying uh, parliament to right. change the rules on um, like two generations yeah yeah it, it sat for a long long time because they could not sell it except as a whole and there was clearly no buyer who wanted to take responsibility for this enormous collection, except the British Library might have, but it certainly didn't have the funds, and it contained so much stuff that was still considered uncollectible detritus that no one, say, no American deep pocket would buy it because nobody wanted all that stuff. When it finally came on the market, uh, Harvard actually came very close to acquiring a large share of it. And it was, I do know about what it was, because the reason they didn't go through with it was the advent of World War I. And they just realized that with that kind of tumultuous, you know, they, they were going to put in that kind of investment. Um, but they, uh, they came close to acquiring a lot of that. Morgan acquired a lot of the best pieces uh, fairly early on. Um, so you're definitely right about that. The sort of American oil barons and institutions had their eye on it and tried to get it. If, if Harvard had been able to acquire it at that point, it would have been, uh, been a game changer in terms of uh, European history. Uh, it just would have been so, it, it would have put them at a level of, of almost a Cambridge or Oxford sort of institution mm-hmm. because it was just so big. But uh, they couldn't because of the outbreak of World War I. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? You know, yeah. An important political yeah. or event in the world it changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And by the time the opportunities came round again, the opportunity for an entire sale gone, right? was gone, basically. Because people were cherry they, they were selling bits yeah. and pieces? They were selling lots. Yes. They were selling, they were having multiple auctions. By then, more collectors were interested in different areas of it, and the prices for those areas were rising. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to take an entire swath of it disappeared. It sounds to me like, uh, because this is exactly what a collector, a good collector does, is they they identify new areas that aren't being looked at, and as a result, they get a lot of stuff for not much money. Mm -hmm. Problem is, it takes a long, long time for everyone else to catch up. Yes. 
which is what happened here, right? Absolutely. And we have a sort of counterexample of that with uh, Toshi Takamiya that I mentioned. Um, he was very interested in Middle English manuscripts at a time when the rest of the world was not. Uh, in the 70s, most people were in the early 80s, people were still interested in Latin manuscripts and illuminated manuscripts. Yeah. And so Professor Takamiya, um, because he was an academic as well, and he just loved the manuscripts. And he was really, I think, the first really big collector to, as you say, very narrowly focus. So his first uh, book was kind of the European book, and as was the second. And then after that, he hits England and does not change. By the 90s, the vernacular manuscripts are now the vogue. Uh, and so come you know, 2015, uh, there's very few of them on the market. Most of them are not eligible to leave England because of the Waverly restrictions, because they're cultural artifacts. So he was one of those individuals that had a niche, had a vision, Followed it, built up an amazing collection in about 20 years. And, and then, did, again, did he have to be, he didn't have to be fabulously wealthy to do this. Not fabulously, it does he help. He had to have. He yeah. had to have funds, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, so certainly beyond, uh, you know, sort of a working class salary. So these books are still expensive in, our, in my terms. Yeah. Uh, they were still expensive. But relative to other books on the market, they were considered, like these charters still are, they were considered to be, why would you want a, a beaten up copy of, of, uh, of a 15th century mystic, uh, that sort of thing, just because it was in Middle English. So his family had money? Yes. I see. Okay. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is these charters are a good deal right now for, the, for a collector who's got yeah. some means, but... Not just collectors, but one of the things I've been thinking about is uh, in the last 10 years, uh, American institutions have really focused on the physical object of, uh, for study. And I don't know if this is a reaction to the Internet or just the normal sort of ebb and flow of academic interest. But all of a sudden, we have a line of people, undergraduates, trying to get into the library to see medieval books, whereas 20 years ago, you know, we were on our hands and knees begging anyone that would would listen. That's Please come and look at this. Yeah. That really is because because yeah. you you hear obviously a lot about the fact that the, the, the digital world is making the the physical object of the book kind of redundant, and mm. that this generation doesn't really care about it. But this yeah. is clearly not the case. You you can teach any class, and once you put the object out. It's an intense fascination. It's an intense attraction. Mm. And a digital image is extremely valuable. You can select things from it. You can work with information in it. But once you are actually in the room with a 14th century manuscript, it's, you realize it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think they have a fascination with that kind of authenticity. When we put, we filled a case with manuscripts that Phillips collected. Mm. And the number of people who stood at the little beat-up charters, you know, looking to see if they could decipher what was going on in those. These are little strips of parchment with little wax seals hanging off them. They look very unprepossessing. And people absolutely love those. They stopped there much more than they stopped at the elaborate mm. manuscript, bound manuscripts. Yeah, the 9th century Carolingian manuscript. That's one of the treasures of the collection. <laughs> um, but where I was going with it was exactly where Diane was, which is, so if you're a smaller university and you don't have a lot of funds, uh, but you want objects to teach from, you could buy a charter for yeah. $500, and your students would have so much fun because they could touch the parchment, they could look at the seal. Um, there are charters in Middle English, so they could actually read some of them, although the handwriting is difficult. So in, in a way, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, it's a good thing the, that we have these less, less expensive yeah, uh, options yeah. that could be wonderfully used in the classroom history to teach about literacy, to teach about the importance of economic documents, um, and that are still not cheap, obviously, no, but, yeah. but affordable, affordable right. for that sort right. of study. And so one of the things uh, I've been proselytizing is sort of, to, you know, we want other universities to acquire materials. Uh, the, the more that's acquired and cared for, the longer the stuff will exist. And, and this is one of the ways I think that universities and colleges can uh, participate in this without the sort of funds that Harvard or Yale or Penn has. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm doing with my podcast is, uh, is trying to encourage a culture of collecting. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my question then is, what are the today's charters for potential collectors? 
you have any thoughts on that, or, or are you already collecting them and you don't want to tell anyone about them? Yeah, yes, that's my mode, is I collect uh, things in yes. secret and don't <laughs> let the world know. It's, uh, right. it's my secret thing. But, I, so, but that follows interestingly. We have yeah. a, um, a book collecting prize here at Yale called the Ben Sindrin Award. And it's a great thing because all these undergraduates have amazing collections formed, you know, often with very little money, but their own creativity. And uh, one of the first years we had Professor Takamiya talk to them as a speaker, because he's, he's a wonderful speaker, very charismatic. And they asked him the same question. They said, well, what would you collect if, you know, you didn't have a lot of money and you wanted to collect stuff? And he yeah. said, um, the, pe- the publishers that publish facsimiles of medieval manuscripts will often distribute examples of a page or two for free as a way of inciting interest. Of a it. page or two of their facsimiles? facsimiles. Yeah. Okay. And he said, I can see this being very valuable in 10 or 15 years when all of it has been thrown out, they're ephemeral, and, and people haven't used them. And it was an example of one of those things where, again, yeah, he's probably right, that eventually historians will want to say, oh my gosh, you have this off-print or there's something that was used for promotion uh, of this uh, material, um, and it's free. Uh, and so you can certainly do that. And so I thought that was it's mm-hmm. the way Professor Takamiya is. He yeah. does, he's got stuff up there that's crazy, that's yeah. just insightful in ways that's wonderful. But for these Fensidran students, I thought that was a great way. Mm-hmm. No money, but uh, and a very niche sort of thing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, collect 20, 30, 40 of those. We mm-hmm. get them all the time, and I, we dispose of them, because what are we going to do with them? We can't catalog them. They're not of research interest yet. <laughs> what are they? They're like prospectuses, kind of? They're sales materials. Yeah. For, for the facsimile edition. For the large, yeah. expensive facsimile. The They're... ones that feel like vellum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they want people to know, oh, they do really look and feel like a medieval yeah. manuscript. So they send them out uh, to anyone I think that will ask. Uh, so we get them all the time. They're very pretty, but there's not much we can do with them after we said they're pretty, unless you're going to buy a facsimile. And we, we tend to focus more on original materials if we can. Uh, we do purchase facsimiles also. Do you have, a, I want to take a photograph of that and put it on the site. Of a promotional? Of something that you just talked about that, we, sure. that the people could possibly collect. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, yeah. So I have a funny story about those, which is when we moved out to rehab the building, um, we were told that we could leave any garbage in our in our offices that we didn't need. And so uh, you could tell a bit of a pack rat. I was mm-hmm. grateful for the opportunity, got the stuff, moved out, um, got a call from our head of security that was really panicked. And she said, you've left collection materials in your office, which is bad on multiple levels, <laughs> like just yes. multiple levels. Yeah. Luckily, I don't ever have collection materials in my office because I'm anxious about them. So I, I knew it wasn't that, but I could not imagine what she was talking about. And she's like, yes, we have uh, you know several things. There's uh, pieces of a chronicle. And, there, and she told our director, and he's not happy. And it finally dawns on me that all these promotional materials I'd stuck in a, in a desk drawer, opened up, saw, and thought, oh, God, I don't have to carry these to the thing. I'll just leave them here. (laughs) Not realizing. Because they're not that important. important. But um, they certainly, uh, you know, if you're not a specialist, they look like medieval materials. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, that was one of my kind of panic, but also sort of funny, uh, yes, the medieval curator leaving collection materials to be thrown out in his office. Um, (laughs) It was an interesting time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, if not, I can get some shortly, but I'm sure we have something here. And what I'll just do is send it to you if if, if I can't find it. Sure. Just finally, some thoughts on uh, lessons that uh, Thomas Phillips might be able to provide us with. And by us, I mean potential book collectors. I would say one of the first lessons, and this is a very positive lesson, is start with a wide focus. You may not stay there, but start looking at things that other people may not be looking at. You know, people were not looking at his little charters. People were not looking at all of the stuff about Italian refugees. People weren't looking. They didn't even see that as collectible. Mm -hmm. They totally missed it. Mm -hmm. You know, in the way that a later generation of 20th century book collectors missed the first paperbacks. Yeah, again, because they, they, they weren't did, seeing it. it wasn't they, they didn't it have much, junk. just like the Japanese, they didn't think they were yes. valuable at all. Yeah. So there was an entire generation by this time of Americans who were busily acquiring every book they could think of and fine editions from Europe, and they missed the American paperback. They didn't collect it because it was just junk that people sold on racks and train stations. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if you could, if you could put together mm. a run of that when it had come out, and mm. you would, ha you had completely. And you could have done it for paper. next to nothing. You could have done it for fifteen cents a piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're we're in this horrible process of getting rid of physical volumes because we no longer have space for them, and so many things are available online. How are you getting rid of them? Well, this is the frightening thing. So the National Union Catalog, which is the I don't even know how to describe it best, but it's the collect the catalog of all. Is it pre fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred? All I'm, printed materials. It's printed materials. Wow, totally. Yeah. I'm only up to fifteen hundred, yeah. but <laughs> all the printed materials in the United States and where they're located in each library. It's a massive, you know, forty volume, maybe maybe more. It takes up a huge space. All of it's available electronically, and so we had several copies, and we originally first offered to give our copy to any place that wanted it. Uh, then we offered to ship it, which was extremely expensive to anywhere in the world. To how many, how many shelf it's, it, this is No, copy. this is enormous. This, this yeah. is an enormous pro product that probably no one who ever had to use it on a regular basis will be sorry right. has been replaced by a database. That <laughs> you can search just <laughs> yes. at the push of a button. Yeah. Exactly. You literally had to leaf through this thing for forever oh, okay. to find what you were looking for. Okay. But of course, no one wants the printed item. So now I don't know where you would find a printed So what happened? It got burnt? Chipped. Chipped? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that, that breaks all of our hearts. There's no way you can say that because the amount of effort that went into putting that together in the first place. And even though it was intimidating, it was beautiful. Uh, very big, well-printed volumes. Yeah. Um, and it was a rite of passage for most of us when we first realized, oh, how do you find something in another library in a pre-digital age? You just couldn't do that. And so here is a way to find anything in the United States uh, and where it was um, and what editions they had. It was just an amazing piece of work. And so even though you know, you're chipping one, volume, you know, one set of it, it still is sort of symbolic of the generation that that threw away their card catalogs after they had uh, transitioned to digital. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, a price there that's hard to yeah. hard to imagine. Um, what about uh, what about Thomas? Thought so for Thomas, I'm going to go in a different direction. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about history had been um, sort of moral history, what you learned from the past to be a better person. And uh, there are two things for Phillips that I thought were really important. And one of those is, Having looked at, at all the letters his daughter sent him and he sent his daughters, even now knowing how important that collection is, I can't imagine most people would trade the affection of their children for books, uh, whatever it is you collect. I just, the amount of pain, especially for his eldest daughter, who clearly loved him and tried so hard to reconcile with him over the years. And um, that may not even been about his collecting ultimately, but just was painful. Uh, you know, 150 years later, you still felt this woman's longing to have uh, a father just respond to her effectively. And so, you know, sometimes we're very caught up in our work, and I always try to remember that, that, that we do this as part of our lives, but, you know, there's a lot of other things that impinge on that. The other thing specifically for collectors is I would love to see collectors collect with an eye towards succession, because we're not going to be here forever. And... Unfortunately, most of your kids are not going to care what you collect. So my dad loved genealogy. Uh, I couldn't care less. And, and when you pass that on, it's one that's huge burden uh, for your family. And also, there are places out there that would, might really value this material. Uh, my father-in-law was a physicist at the University of Chicago and literally didn't get the Nobel, but should have. One of those really impressive people. And when he died, his... My, my mother-in-law was going to throw all of his research notes out. And I said, you can't do that. You, you need to save those. And she said, but those are just the works. The actual published stuff is his, his work. I said, trust me. just." And so she called the Clear Science Library, and they said, thank you, Jesus. We'll come up tomorrow and take everything out that you want. But this flies in the face of what you were just saying about that printed volume yeah. that was gypped. Yeah. Are institutions still taking paper? Oh my yes. God, yes. <laughs> Especially manuscript, you know, things that are not yeah. reproduced. Yeah. So uh, we do even take, like, for example, email is problematic. Uh, all these digital materials, what do they look like five years from now? Mm. Uh, do we have programs to open them? So literally... You print we, them out? Yes. Right. We print them out, and uh, usually they, the authors themselves have done it, but sometimes we do. 
because believe it or not, that's a more stable medium uh, than the digital. I like to hear that. So we certainly do that. Philip certainly could have reached a deal to donate, sell, give these books in a, in a much better way uh, and not have left such a, a tangle. Um, and with modern collectors, we have uh, at the bank, we just had a group uh, inspired by our exhibit um, that came in and they, these were mostly graduate students, but a few undergraduates, and they had already started collecting some pretty impressive things. But we had to tell them, if, if you want your materials to go into an institutional collection, they have to have been acquired uh, legitimately, which means things like have export licenses. Um, and these are things that a lot of collectors don't think about because booksellers don't care. But the moment you go to an institution, uh, we can't even accept as a gift materials that have not come out of Europe, for example, with proper documentation. So anything that's come out since 1971 needs an export license. Uh, in order even for, if you bought like a $20 book, you need, you need to attach that there's, to your there's, collection? There's all sorts of different rules about that. So they have to do with value and dates and all those sorts of things. Oh, so it probably doesn't apply to things like that. But your for, $20 book is safe. On the other hand... <laughs> your $20,000 book, limited edition, signed by the author, even though that's a modern book, you may very yeah. well end up needing documentation. So it's sometimes better to have an eye of it. Yeah. Institutions have real restrictions yeah. on what it is that we're, we're able to do, and this is one of those things. And it's designed to present, uh, prevent both theft, so with all of the pillaging uh, that's taken place as a result of ISIS and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, oh, yeah. a lot of those uh, materials have come up on the market, mm -hmm. uh, stolen from libraries, from museums, mm -hmm. from uh, archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And then the other part of that is uh, cultural patrimony. So those, mm -hmm. those countries have to have the opportunity to say, okay, this is something we need to keep or something that is fine to export. So. Mm -hmm. Um, those sorts of things. Where, where do you want it to go? Uh, it costs a lot of money for us to acquire a free gift. Yes. It really does. That's something collectors don't think about, but very expensive to catalog and keep for the indefinite future. So uh, the easier you can make it for the institution. Yeah, or just have that. Yeah, it, it's part of your mind. And I can't tell you how many calls I get from kids and grandkids saying, you know, my father spent his life on this collection. And it's like, I we can't, you know. <laughs> and he's the only one that knows the value of most of it. He's the one that knows what the expensive books are. He was the expert uh, in that. So, yeah, just I guess that was the thing that, that struck me was uh, and save yourself a lot of trouble by, you know, thinking ahead. And institutions, I think, are always happy to talk about those sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're a collector and you're thinking, what do I do with this stuff? Uh, we're happy to talk to people even if you're not thinking of to encourage us book culture. Exactly. Exactly. All the time. Yeah, we're good, that's good. what we want to do is. Uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're part of a community, uh, and, and we see that as one of our obligations to that community is to make sure that your materials end up in the right place, which means a place that they will be used uh, and they'll be cared for. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's stuff we don't collect, and it would be a pity to stick it here because it wouldn't get that attention. Uh, whereas Jewish Theological Seminary has got a lot of it already, and they could definitely use a few more, and you've, you've already got a scholarly community around that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, that's one of the things where we try to encourage people to put their things in places that are best for, for them and the materials. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, sharing sure. your uh, lessons and knowledge about the life of, uh, of this extraordinary uh, book collector. I've been speaking to... Uh, Ray Clements, curator of early books at the Beinecke Library. And Diane Ducharme, archivist and manuscript cataloger, Beinecke Library. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.